pray with me, please? Spirit of the living God, we ask this morning that you would enlighten our minds to the truth of the message of the cross of which we have sung already this morning. We pray that our understanding will be greater than our human thought, that the Spirit would enlighten us. We pray that he would make application to our hearts and to this church, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's open our Bibles now and turn, please, to page, well, not page, but chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And uh, the worship team read to us a portion of the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to look right from chapter 1, verse 18, right through to chapter 2, verse 5, a fairly extensive passage. And there are some important things here that I want to uh, point out to you by God's help this, this morning. I want us to keep in mind as we look at these verses that, that the Apostle Paul has an overarching concern as he's writing these opening verses. And we looked at that concern last Sunday morning. That concern is for unity in the church of God at Corinth, and for that matter, in any local church. That is Paul's dominant thought. And this concern is the first problem in the Corinthian church that the Apostle Paul addressed. Now, we discovered last Sunday morning that this division that existed in the church of God in Corinth was focused around personalities. It wasn't the personalities themselves who were fostering the division. Rather, it was people in the church who were gathered around certain individuals who had been leaders in the church. And all of their devotion was for people like Paul or Apollos or Peter, and it caused schism, it caused faction in the church. Now, beginning of verse 18, right through to the end of chapter 3, Paul's focus moves now from the personality-driven division to the philosophical-driven division. In other words, there were individuals in the church who were embracing certain kinds of philosophies. In this passage, it's called the wisdom of the world. Philosophical thought. In other words, thought about what is a vision for life. Now, in this sense, the Corinthians were simply mirroring the culture that surrounded them. Because the culture that surround, surrounded them was all about certain personalities and certain philosophies. And Paul, as we saw last week, he brings the church back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's the truth that we believe about Jesus and the gospel that builds unity in the church. It appears that there were a number of individuals in the Corinthian church who had a very defective um, outlook on what the gospel was all about. Uh, they, they weren't really firmly grasping the truth about Jesus and his death on the cross. And so they got caught up in this cultural pursuit of wisdom. They were, they were more into intellectual pursuit. They were developing different kinds of worldviews from the message of the cross. So keep that in mind. This is the concern that Paul has, unity in the church. Now, in these verses, the other thing that he does is he contrasts 
two very different types of wisdom. On the one hand, we have the wisdom of the world, all of its philosophical pursuit, all of the isms that the world believes in. And then we have the wisdom of God, which is which is centered on the cross of Jesus Christ. For those who have bought into the wisdom of the world, the message of the cross is absolute foolishness. But from God's vantage point, and from the vantage point of us who have believed the message of the cross, we look at the wisdom of the world and we see that it is nothing more than foolishness. So the contrast in these verses is between God's true wisdom and humanity's supposed wisdom. The focus in these verses, the contrast in these verses, is about God's supposed foolishness and humanity's true foolishness. Now we know that the ancient Greeks were in love with wisdom, and that is what the word philosophy means. It comes from two Greek words, phileo, which is love, and sophia, which is Wisdom, philosophy, is the love, the pursuit of wisdom. In the Greek world at this time, the Roman Greek world, specifically in the areas surrounding places like Athens and Corinth, there were 50 different philosophical groups and and all of their, their wisdom was competing against each other. And each one presented a particular view of life. Each one talked about the meaning of life and the purpose of life and the values of life and the destiny of human life. In other words, it was all about worldviews. In our culture, people are are enamored with the same thing today. People are are caught up in in wisdom. They're, They're caught up almost to the point of worshiping human opinion. And we see in our culture today a clash of worldviews that is taking place. But friends, to boil it all down, when you take all of the philosophies and the wisdom and the worldviews of the world, you boil them all down, they have one thing in common. Human beings are at the center of everything. And God, he's on the margins, if he's even considered at all. All of the, 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 the philosophies of this world are, are deifying man and humanizing God. At the core of, of every philosophical system in the world, be it political, scientific, religious, whatever, at the core of it all is a rejection of what God has revealed and a pursuit of what men have created in their own minds. At the very core of all of it, no matter how scholarly it might seem, how scientific, how sincere, it appears to cater to the self-will, to pride, to human pride, to, to the sinful inclinations of human being, to beings, to justify the way we are. It's all about independence from God. And the reason why People follow these things and embrace these different worldviews is because they appeal to our human ego. In contrast then, we have the wisdom of God. It is the message of the cross, verse 18. For the message of the cross 
is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Now, I want you to see four things today from what this passage is telling us. First of all, the message of the cross divides the human race. It divides us. Verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We have those who are perishing. We have those who are being saved. There's a division in the human race, and it all, it all focuses on this message of the cross. The ancient world, like our world, had all kinds of different divisions and groupings of people that, that, that back then people would refer, refer to, the polarizations that existed among human beings in the New Testament world in which Paul lived. If, if, if you weren't a Roman, then you're a barbarian. If you weren't a Jew, you're a Greek. If you weren't a slave, then you are free. Those were the social and, 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 and the social um, classifications that existed then. In our world today, we talk about the West and the East. We talk about the division of race, we, black and white. We talk about Anglophone and Francophone. We, we, talk, about, we talk about conservative and liberal. We, we have different classifications. We base our classifications today on, on culture or on race or on language or on political affiliation. And you know what Paul's saying in these verses? That the only real important division in the human race, he disregards all these other divisions. They're, they're simply meaningless, Paul says. The only division that really matters is those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And note, the dividing line is the cross. It's the message of the cross that causes this division. And this division is linked to the purpose of God. And we see the purpose of God in the, ninth, the, ninth, the 19th verse. Here Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 29, where God makes it clear that he will frustrate the wise people of the world because he wants the world to know that he alone is God. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. This is a central theme in God's word to make the world understand that there is only one truly wise one in the universe, that he is the only wise God. And so the message of the cross shatters all, all human pretensions to, to intelligence and Wisdom, it is the central theme in one sense of that, a cent, cent, central theme that runs through the word of God. And it reveals that at the core is our rebellion, the way we think. We think we are at the center of all things. We think the world revolves around us. We think we are number one by our pursuit of wisdom and philosophy. And God says he will destroy it all. And so to make his point then, he asks four questions in verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the wise person, he asks. And he means here, where is the person who has adopted and defended these various worldviews? 
the wise who, who claim that they can make sense of life and death and the universe. You see, if you, if you can make sense of all that, then you, then you have, you have, as it were, uh, a sense of power. The wise man, the philosopher, yeah, yeah, I've got it all together. I have this sense of power. If you can explain life, then you can control life. And Paul is asking here, where, where is the wise man? Where, where, is, where is the system of wisdom that has disclosed the good news of Jesus Christ? Where is the system of wisdom that makes clear what God has done through the cross? Which wise person in our world has, has actually discerned the plan of salvation all by himself or herself? Listen, friends, you can take the message of the cross, what we have been singing about today, the message of the cross, and you place that next to all of the so-called wise philosophies of the world, all of the isms, and compare them. I mean, what place does the cross have in communism? What place does the cross have in, in capitalism? What place does the cross have in, in hedonism? Has hedonism led anyone to the cross? Pluralism. Has pluralism led anyone to the cross? Humanism. Does humanism reveal that in the cross, God revealed himself to us? Humanism doesn't even believe in God. Will Hinduism or Buddhism or any kind of Eastern mysticism lead anyone to the cross of Christ and give them salvation? On the political realm, will conservatism or liberalism or socialism lead anyone to the cross? And what about the newisms that are so prevalent in our society today? Wokeism and environmentalism. Do they, do they bring about the salvation of human beings? You see, all of these isms promise salvation, but they redefine what salvation really is. And all of these isms never touch at the core of human need. The point of the Apostle Paul here when he asks, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this, of this age? Is he is saying that no philosophy, religious or political, spiritual or scientific, no commonly accepted wisdom has eternal significance and saving power. None of them can bring people to the cross. None of them know how to reconcile a sinful humanity to a holy God. They cannot uncover God's wisdom in the cross. And if God's wisdom in the cross is hidden, then all other wisdom, Paul says, is foolishness. The message of the cross is not just another competing philosophical system made up by men. The message of the cross of Jesus is, is not on par with all these other isms. Paul is saying that human wisdom fails completely because human wisdom fails to address what the real need of human beings is. And so he asks then, where is the scholar? 
Now, when we think of the word scholar, we think of an academic, a very highly gifted one. But the word here is actually scribe. And the scribe was the man who, who would take the word of God. He was an expert in the word of God. And, and he was an expert in, 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 in developing the traditions that, 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 that the Jews created around the law of the living God. And Paul's point here is there is no one, no, there, there's no scribe who, who has developed, developed a system where the cross is at the very center because everything the scribes did was about human achievement. And none of them anticipated the death of a Messiah on the cross. Where is the philosopher of this age? The word there is the debater, the man with great impressive oratory skills. I mean, they can go on and on and on and on and on with all of their impressive rhetoric, Paul says. But, but who has ever been reconciled to God by listening to them? And the fact is found in the fourth question that he asks. The first three lead to the final one. And the final question is, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? The wisdom of this world is bankrupt. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. The wisdom of the world is bankrupt. And the wisdom of the world divides the human race from those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Now notice the, the next thing that Paul says, beginning at verse, at verse 22. He points out here that the ministry of the cross, or the message of the cross, displays God's, I'm going to call it, upside-down wisdom and power. In other words, it looks like foolishness, but it's really wise. God, God, God turns the wisdom of the world upside down, and he turns his wisdom right side up. And so he says, verse 22, Jews, and this was a, a general characteristic of the Jews of the ancient world. He said, Jews demand miraculous signs. And Greeks, that other portion, well, they look for wisdom. I think Paul mentions Jews and Greeks here because he sees in them a representation of what is true of humanity at large. Jews and Greeks, Jews who seek for signs, demand signs, and, and, and Greeks who seek after philosophical systems of thought, they represent, as it were, the rebellion of the human race, which is manifested in different ways. They represent, in many ways, the idolatries of every age. So he says the Jews, they, they demanded signs. Now, actually, it's a little puzzling here when you, when you see what Paul says, because in one sense, didn't, didn't Jesus do signs in order that people would believe? You remember at the end of the gospel, the gospel of John, Jesus did many other miraculous signs, John says, and in reference to the seven that are recorded in the gospel of John. Jesus did many other miraculous signs, and, and, and they're not recorded in this book, but these, these seven signs have been recorded, he says. Why? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
So on the one hand, there is this something good that comes when when Jesus gave miraculous signs, and so we're somewhat puzzled when he says negatively, Jews demand miraculous signs. But the emphasis is on the word demand. Jews demand miraculous signs. In other words, they want to be in the driver's seat. Now there's the idolatry. There's the rebellion of the human race. They want to be in the driver's seat. They're demanding signs in order that they can evaluate Jesus. In order that they can assess the claims of Jesus. They're demanding signs to, to, to test the credentials of Jesus. The demand for signs shows we're superior. We're in control. This is our demand. We will be the judge of God and of Christ. And so you see this all the time. People, people raise these, this up as a sort of a barrier to their unbelief. If God will do this, or if God will do that, if God will meet this need, if God will heal this person, then I'll believe. Well, who's the judge there? Who's in the driver's seat? You see, demanding signs is stipulating the terms that God has to accept if God wants the privilege of my belief. It's rebellion at its core. And Greeks, well, they go after wisdom. As we've already said, they create systems of thought. Systems of thought to to maintain this delusion that they can explain everything. And we we rub shoulders with people like this on a daily basis who who think that that because they're so scientific (laughs) that they they have a, a handle on life that no one else does. They think that science and they think that they are in control. They think that they are powerful because of their worldview. And if God, if he exists at all, then he must fit into my system. And both the Greeks and the Jews were self-centered. Both of these ways of looking at life treat God as if we have a right to approve of him or to disapprove of him. And notice what Paul says in verse 23. After he talks about Jews and Greeks, he says, but we, we, we believers, the apostles, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is greater than man's strength. To the Jews, a crucified Messiah? It's a stumbling block because in their minds, the Messiah is all powerful. The Messiah would never succumb to human power. The Messiah would never be put to death. He would reign. He is glorious. And they miss the whole point of the message of the cross. And foolishness to Greeks. What? What? Through through a criminal's death? The world can be saved? But Paul says to us, those of us who are called... 
In verse 24, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, in the cross of Jesus Christ, we have an incredible display of the power of God. In the cross of Christ, we have an incredible display of the wisdom of God. It's all upside down in the moment of Jesus' weakness. As he dies on the cross, the power of God is seen. And in this moment when to human beings it would seem foolish that Jesus would actually submit to that, we have the wisdom of God displayed. The message of the cross divides humanity. The message of the cross displays God's upside down wisdom and power. And now beginning at verse 26, he talks about those people who have believed the message of the cross. Look at what he says, brothers. Think of what you were, verse 26, when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. So now he's talking about those who have received the message of the cross. And you know what he says here? He says, look at yourselves. Look at yourselves. You know that this is true. This is an observable observable fact. You Christians, you, you followers of Jesus, when, when God called you, you, you were not the great opinion makers of this world. By human standards, by, by the way the world evaluates people, by the way the world classifies people, you don't even rank. You're not even close to the top. It's interesting that throughout history, the words of the Apostle Paul in this passage have been used Against the Christian faith, a Greek philosopher by the name of Celsus wrote a whole book against the Christian faith where he, where he mocks the unintelligent believers. The, that he says, you, you think that intelligence is an evil. You think that wisdom is an evil. And, and, and he basically says, you're nothing, you're nobodies. And contemporary intellectuals do the same. Sometimes you engage with them in, in debate and, and they look at you like you are an absolute idiot for believing in Christ and the cross. But, but Paul's not saying, notice exactly what he says. Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise. Notice he doesn't say not any. He says not many. There's a big difference there. And actually, the scriptures record that there were many people of great influence and high standing who believed the message of the cross. Nicodemus, the educated Pharisee who was a member of the ruling Sanhedrin, he came to Christ. Joseph of Arimathea, a very, very rich man, gave his mausoleum as a burial place for the Lord Jesus. Lydia, a prominent businesswoman in Philippi, believed. Apollos, a great orator, a man of great intellect, believed. Cornelius, a centurion, a man who gave control over this this exclusive and elite Italian regiment of the Roman army. He believed. And the apostle Paul, do we know of any greater intellect than Paul? A man of incredible intelligence. It says not many 
It does not say not any. And the point is this. God's grace can reach anyone. But if you think, if you think for a moment that because you're a little bit superior than someone else, if you have greater wisdom than other people, if you think that you are, you are, you are somewhat more powerful, more rich, more elite than anyone else, and you think that that gives you an advantage into the kingdom of God, you will be excluded. And why does God pursue this? Why does he pursue, as it were, people who are not influential or of noble birth? Verse 27, God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God chose the nobodies, is what he's saying. Okay, I want you to do something right, right now. I know this is kind of serious what I'm saying here today. So just to add a little bit of light, lightness and to wake you all up this morning, I want you to turn to someone who's seated very, very close to you. Would you, would you do that? Just kind of turn your faces. And I want you to say this to them. It's nice to meet you today. Would you, would you say that, please? Okay, okay, that's enough. That's, I only said, that, that's only four words and you're still talking. Now I want, I want you to look at that person and, and say to that person, you ready? You're a nobody. Well, again, it took, it took that long to say it. Verse 21. Why does God choose us, nobodies? There it is. So that no one may boast before him. There it is. Salvation is only of grace. God's saving act in choosing us to believe in his son is not like immigration Canada, which chooses the educated, the people with the best skills to make Canada work better, the people with the most money so that they can come into Canada and contribute to the Canadian economy. That's not how God thinks at all. He chooses the, no, the nobodies. But look at verse 30. We still have something to boast about. It is because of him because of God that you are in Christ. God chose you. You are the called. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. And notice what he says. Who has become for us wisdom from God. No, what is this wisdom from God? Next line. That is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. What does this wisdom from God mean? What does it mean that Jesus has become wisdom for us whom God has chosen? It means righteousness. We are given righteousness. We are given a legal standing before God whereby he declares us as those who have never sinned. He actually gives to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So when God looks upon us legally, he sees our standing before him as purely righteous. 
Jesus Christ has become our holiness. That's the, that's the sphere that we now belong in. That's what God is doing in us, making us more and more into his image. Redemption. The language comes from slaves. To be redeemed was to be bought back, was, was to be bought into freedom. And this is what God has done for us, for us. And so verse 31, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now let's go to the final thing here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, where we see what Paul says about the proclamation of the message of the cross. Let me read these words to you. Chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, Paul's going back to that time. He went to Corinth. It's recorded in Acts 18. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except this, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now that's the message of the cross. Verse 3, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So here in verses 1 and 4, he is contrasting then the philosophers, the orators, the wise people who, who, who had a brilliant way of persuading people with their words. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not what, that's not what I was all about. When I was there with you, there was only one thing I wanted. Only one thing I wanted you to know. Only one thing I communicated to you. And that was Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, when Paul says in verse 4 that, that, that he, he did not use wise and persuasive words, Paul is not saying that he was an incompetent speaker. He's not saying that he was a bad communicator. Rather, he is saying that he purposely avoided elitist-type communication in order to impress people. His focus was on the content of what he said. Go back to verse 21. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached. What was preached? Christ on the cross. To save those who believe. Paul said, my, my, my communicating of, of the message of the cross to you was not with clever, witting, and amusing speech because, because that kind of talk doesn't square with the message of the cross. It doesn't square with the seriousness of the message of what God was accomplishing through Jesus Christ on the cross. Last Sunday morning, I mentioned Charles Tem Templeton in my message about this couple that was in my church in Toronto who had been baptized by, by him. And I talked about when he, when he died and how distressed they, they were. Well, I want to use Charles Templeton again this morning as an example, I think, of what Paul is saying here. Five or six weeks, weeks ago during the Christmas season, Andrea and I went up to Bracebridge and to Aurelia for a couple of days. And we visited in Bracebridge in a senior's residence, Dr. Barry Moore. 
Dr. Barry Moore was a, a great evangelist, I think the most outstanding evangelist Canada has ever seen. And some of you who are my age or older would know that, know that name. There might even be some people here who came to Christ under Barry's preaching. Well, I had contacted Barry in 2001 to have a conversation with him about Charles Templeton. Barry is 97 years old today, and he was a very personal friend to Chuck Templeton and to Billy Graham. When I talked to, to Barry about Chuck Tem Templeton's death, Barry said to me, these were his words, that Chuck Templeton was a golden-throated orator. He said Templeton was a master of verbal description. In his book, The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel mentions a visit that he had with Charles Tem Templeton in his apartment in Toronto two or three years before Templeton died. And Strobel wrote these words. He spoke with eloquence and enthusiasm, using an impressive vocabulary, his rich and robust voice rising and lowering for emphasis. He had an aristocratic tone that sounded theatrical at times. In the late 1940s and early 1950s, when Billy Graham preached for Youth for Christ, people were very, very impressed with his enthusiasm. But they commented about him that he lacked a certain sophistication when he spoke. They talked about his Carolina drawl, his lack of eloquence when he spoke. And they compared him all the time to Charles Templeton. And Templeton just seemed to tower over Billy Graham, even in the results of, of preaching. But over time, over time, spiritual people, people who are really in tune with God, began to notice a discernible difference between the two. And Billy Graham's preaching rose, and Charles Templeton's preaching waned, and Charles Templeton abandoned the faith. I will never forget what Barry Moore said to me in September of 2001. He said these words. He said, John, Billy, let the word do the work. Chuck, let his words do the work. And in a conversation that Billy Graham had with Charles Templeton in the Taft Hotel in New York City, when Templeton tried to persuade him as well to abandon his faith and trust in God's word, Billy Graham, after having gone through a long struggle in his soul, said to him, to his friend, he says, all I know is this, when I preach the Bible as God's word, things happen. He says, the Holy Spirit uses me. And people respond. Look at verse 5. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And that demonstration was people coming to faith. Verse four, 5, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. I want to take just a couple of moments now and, and reflect as a pastor on what I have just said, its implications for us, reflections on the cross and on the church. 
from the heart. Number one, the world's wisdoms. I put that in, in plural there. The world's wisdoms must not be allowed to dilute or to supplant the message and the power of the cross. Friends, that's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. We don't know who the individuals were, but clearly individuals were, 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 were leading the church in a direction where they became more enamored with the wisdom of this world than with the message of the cross. And Paul was writing here to correct this very thing. Because Paul knew this, that when you allow the wisdom, the philosophical systems, the worldview of the world to come into the church and to be added to the gospel, you are not in any way strengthening the gospel. You are supplanting it. You are destroying it. Any gospel that adds the wisdom of the world to it is no gospel at all. Martin Lloyd-Jones looked very discerningly in the middle 20th century at the state of the church in Great Britain and I believe the English-speaking world at that time. And he talked about this very thing. In those days, those who believed the Bible would refer to what we today call theological liberalism as modernism. And what they meant was there were churches and church leaders who were basically saying that the scriptures are good, but they are not completely authoritative. That the, script, the scripture gives us valuable lessons about God, but the scripture is also filled with myths. They wanted to demythologize God's word. That the healings and the miracles of Jesus didn't really happen, but they're just simply like parables to explain something about God to us. In other words, they began to say that the Scripture contains the Word of God, but the Scripture is not the Word of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, he said, the whole drift toward modernism that has blighted the church of God and nearly destroyed its living gospel may be traced to an hour when men began to turn from revelation to prophecy, sorry, to philosophy. And he was right. In the last hundred years, we have seen this in our own nation, and it is happening today. Friends, there are humanistic views. There are worldviews about human sexuality today that are infiltrating the church of Jesus Christ, thinking that somehow we can add this to the gospel message. Listen, if we do not understand the brokenness of human beings, if we do not understand that sin has tainted every single part of our human, of our humanity, if we do not understand that and understand that it is only through the gospel that we can be set free and liberated by God's power, then we will be swept away by the wisdom that is being propagated today. Adding human wisdom to the gospel of Christ is no gospel at all. Number two, related to the first. The ministries of our church must remain focused on the ministry 
of the cross. In other words, everything we do here as a church, all of what we teach needs to have linkage to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're involved in Star Kids and you're teaching kids in the church, we're not, we're not a church about teaching morality to kids. Teaching morality to kids doesn't change anybody. Teaching morality to adults changes no one. We are not a social service. We are the church of Jesus Christ. It is the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and all of the ethical implications that come out of believing in the gospel that must remain the focus of our church. And finally, number three, the Spirit's power accompanies the message of the cross. He makes it clear, my message, my preaching of the cross, were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. There is a link between prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. No other way to explain it. Jesus taught it. Jesus taught it. If we being evil know how to give good gifts to our kids, how much more will our Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Now, it's an interesting thing that Jesus said, because you and I immediately say, yes, but we already have the Spirit. So when Jesus said those words, he was not talking about us receiving the Spirit, whom we received when we came to faith in Christ. Rather, Jesus is talking about receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the disciples were to wait in Jerusalem. And he said, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And what did the disciples do for that period of time as they waited for the Holy Spirit to come? They gathered together in prayer. Listen, the greatest ministry of the church is prayer. It's prayer. We do so much in our church without prayer. The unleashing of God's power is linked to the praying of God's people. When prayer goes up, what happens? When prayer goes up, power comes down. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, these are the things we must be diligent about. And these are the things that we must give ourselves wholeheartedly to. Would you stand, please? Spirit of God, again, we ask that you will take the words of this message and apply it to each of our hearts, to church leaders, to church members, to people here who make West Highland their home, to people here who may not yet know Christ. Apply it, we pray, to each heart for Jesus' sake. Amen.